Well, this week uh, begins Holy Week, uh, a very, very important um, week. It leads up to the pinnacle of our Christian faith, which is Easter. I can't wait for this next Sunday over in Christ Chapel, and we all get to see each other and see who's part of our church. And, you know, sometimes we have a 5 o'clock church and a 9 a.m. church and 11 a.m. church, and so an opportunity this time of year to be able to see that. And so as for us to celebrate this amazing thing that took place you know, the story, um, the message of Easter is it. It is, it is the, um, what the Christian story is all about. It sets it apart from every other story. Uh, it is brimming with new life and reconciliation and regeneration and n- uh, new beginnings in every possible way. Um, nature actually is screaming about new life. We see flowers popping out of the ground and leaves and buds popping out of branches that look like they're dead and and uh, it's an amazing, uh, amazing thing for us to consider. And so as we're anticipating this, as we're coming up to this next Sunday, that we thought it would be very, very appropriate for us um, to share about the wrath of God. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came this morning? <laughs> Aren't you excited? Can't you just feel it kind of coming up in you? You know, actually, the wrath of God is one of the most misunderstood elements of the Christian story. It has caused so many people to pull away from God and to kind of duck and be confused about what all this, what this is all about. So they read throughout the scripture and they read these statements about the wrath of God. And we talk so much about the love of God. And what, what does this actually mean? I also believe that we can't fully experience and understand Easter unless we understand this rightly. And we also can't just not think about it. You know, sometimes it's just easier in life just to not think about some things. But it's not healthy for us to do that either. If we have fear or mistrust in any relationship, it affects our intimacy. We can't have a closeness with someone that we have a fear of or that we're afraid they're mad at us. When we were first married, um, I would find myself going shopping, and I would come home, and I would have my bags of things, and I'd lay them down on the bed, and I'd go, okay, I bought this, but it was 50% off, which that store was cheaper anyway, so 50% off made it a really good deal. And, okay, I got these shoes, but you saw my black shoes. I mean, they're really getting worn, so I had a good reason for buying these. And we really needed to stock up on this, and it's cheaper right now than it's going to be later on. And Brent was like, why are you doing this? Why are you explaining all of these things to me? More details than he possibly wanted to know. And and we started talking about it. And it's interesting because Brent and I are extremely um, similar in terms of finances and what we think are are our priority. But we started thinking about it. And I realized it went back to the relationship that I had with my dad. Some of you know my dad retired really early for a brief period of time. He was retired at 40. And um, when I was in high school, when I would go out and buy something because he was sitting around the house, when I would go out and buy something that I spent my own money for, and I would walk in the house with my packages, he would be like, you got something new? What do you have now? Another pair of shoes? What is that? And so I'd have to explain everything that I got to him. And I ended up, because I drove a convertible and I had this blanket that I always put over the seats to get it, keep it from being too hot, I would end up going shopping, wrap all my packages in my army blanket from my car. I'd walk into the house. Hi, guys, I'm home. Walk to the laundry chute, 
stuff it all down the laundry chute. <laughs> then I would go downstairs, take the packages out, cut the tags off, put the clothes on, throw the bags away. And then I didn't have to explain anything. Because my dad would never notice if it was new clothes. It was just the packages that he saw. Well, what I realized was I carried a belief in me that husbands wanted you to justify everything that you spent and that they were mad at you if you spent money. So I brought that into marriage where it was not the case at all. I was operating on a false belief system based on my past. It was not my reality. But I believe if that had continued, I think it would have created a mistrust between us And it would have affected our relationship overall because I would have assumed every time I went shopping, which does happen from time to time. um, (laughs) That is one of her spiritual gifts. It is, Uh, yes. She's really, really gifted. Really gifted. I do sometimes send him little emails and in the line, if it's something I've ordered online, it's, I am a sinner. If it's not one thing, it's another. Um, But if I had continued to live in that false belief system, it would have affected our relationship. So this weekend, as we are considering and contemplating what Jesus has done for us, and as we celebrate this new life in him, if in the back of our mind we think that we think about Jesus and look at Jesus, if we kind of think maybe behind his shoulder somewhere there's God the Father that really is still pretty ticked at me, that he is angry and not happy Um, with my failures and with my missteps, then we will find ourselves pulling back and we will begin to self-protect. And so we're going to begin discussing this today, looking at Colossians 3. This will be our jumping off point here today. It says, first of all, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. The wrath of God has been used throughout the century to simply just scare the crud out of people. Um, And it has worked quite well. If you can put the terror, terror in the hearts of men and suggest that you have a way out of that, you can get them to do almost anything. This is so contrary, the way this has been portrayed over the years is so contrary to the expression in the life of Jesus, particularly what we're going to be considering this week, uh, his sacrifice on the cross. One of the most famous sermons in history is Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinner in the Hands of an Angry God. It was written and it was preached in 1741, and so I'm going to read excerpts, I promise I won't read the whole thing, of this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And terribleness of the omnipotent God shall be magnified upon you in the inevitable strength of your torments. And when you shall be in this state of suffering... 
the glorious inhabitants of heaven shall go forth and look on the awful spectacle, that they may see what the wrath and fierceness of the Almighty is. And when they have seen it, they will fall down afore that great power and majesty. Kind of affirmed and kind of feel kind of warm and fuzzy there. Um, that somehow God looks at us because of our sin and rebellion and kind of dangles us over the fire by a thread and that the fire is going to come up and burn it and we're going to drop into it. And one of the most troubling or twisted parts of this kind of thinking over the years has been that somehow those in heaven are going to kind of peer over and almost with joy in their hearts look at, well, look at Cousin Harry. Um, I knew he was going to probably end up there, that somehow that we're actually going to be kind of thankful or glad that that has happened. So antithetical to the way that Jesus talked to us about even considering those that are enemies in our life. And Matthew 5 says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus was praying for those who persecuted him. That doesn't sound like a God that abhors you, that is holding you over the fire, saying, you miserable, terrible wretch. I cannot believe that Jesus would come to earth and die on the cross, suffer all of that for us, just to say we were loathsome creatures, that we were horrible people. He came to take our sins upon him, not to look down on us with this terrible abhorrence. You know, oftentimes um, I will see people in counseling and one of the things I hear over and over again, and I think all of us deal with this somewhat, is this idea of, well, yes, Jesus forgave me for all of my sins up to the point that I know him. But then after that, he is so mad at me. Everything I do, he is ready to just strike me for something. I Many times I'll have people go, is God mad at me for this? He would not send Jesus to die on the cross for you and say, one time deal, baby, you mess up from here and it's all over. He loves you. His mercies are new every morning. He has forgiveness for us and there's not a time limit. But this concept of an angry God that so impacted the church for generations gives us this idea that he is angry with us, that he's upset with us. And you know what? I can see people fearing this type of God. It makes sense that people would fear this type of God, but I don't think a healthy person could love that type of God. I think otherwise, if we said, okay, yes, I love him, it may be because we're afraid we're going to go to hell or he's going to smite us. God has love for his children. One of the things we've enjoyed doing over the years, we've had an opportunity to, several times, is to travel Europe. And one of the amazing things is just seeing some of the buildings that you come across. We were walking one time in London and walked by a building, and it said, rebuilt in 1430. Um, we don't experience those kind of things in America. And one of the amazing things that you'll see is these wonderful cathedrals. Uh, you can go in and stained glass and just you figure out how in the world did they get all this uh, brick and mortar together and pretty amazing. Many of these were actually built by utilizing this stream of thought. 
Uh, one of the things that the church would do would, was sell indulgences that you could actually kind of pay your way out of suffering. If you gave a certain amount of money, then you could limit your time of suffering. Uh, for instance, in purgatory, which was this place that some thought that you would go if you weren't quite holy enough to make it into heaven the first go around, then you could go to purgatory and experience some more kind of pain and suffering that would then purify you enough so that you could then enter into heaven. And you could actually pay your way out of that. If I buy a section of stained glass, then I could buy my way out of some of the time that I was going to have to live in purgatory. Actually, one of the greatest money-making schemes of all times. Um, and we do have a building project going on, you know. Maybe we need to kind of rethink how we're... Okay, all right, forget... <laughs> Mama needs a new bathroom. <laughs> this extreme view uh, of God's wrath has been very destructive. It's pushed so many different people um, away. I'm sure you've talked to some folks that you've talked to about the love of God and yet they bring up these questions about, but what about this? And it says that God did this. And unfortunately, this view of God didn't die in the 18th century with Jonathan Edwards. As a matter of fact, there's a kind of a current uh, stream coming alive again um, today. Um, you can hear some national voices right now that would use some of this kind of language. And they would consider Jonathan Edwards one of their heroes of the faith. And so this is something that still continues to weave in and out of Christian history. Now, on the other hand, people have just jumped to the opposite extreme and just skipped over all these verses, um, where any time where it talks about the wrath of God, they just act like it's not in the scripture. Let's just not think about it. And it actually creates what we call cognitive dissonance, where where we actually think it's the pressure and stress that we experience in our life by having two opposite beliefs. And it just unsettles us. It just creates this sense of insecurity in our thinking. It, it's kind of like what I've struggled with a little bit with one of my sons when he was at ORU on a floor that he really loved that were wonderful guys and I loved the fellowship that they had. On the other hand, they did some really risky things from time to time. And so I found myself as a mom going, la, 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 la. I don't want to know what's happening. I'm, I'm happy about this, but let's just not think about some of the other things. So it was midnight, and you guys had machetes running through the woods. And then you all made everybody jump in a lake and swim across the lake um, to an island in the middle of the lake. It's just best not to think about some things. <laughs> Sorry, a little parental moment here, okay. Um, la, la, la. <laughs> so back to the point. Um, without having a proper understanding of this, uh, it creates an instability in our soul. We're just not fully founded because we always have a little bit of this doubt, a little bit of this question that comes up in our mind. This opposite view of God where we take the other extreme kind of represents God a little bit like an, a half-senile old grandpa that his response to our sin and rebellion is something like, oh, these kids these days, the stuff that they get into, where there's just no sense of justice, um, um, no consequence for sin whatsoever. 
So it's important for us to examine this, to examine the core of our belief system and what is it that founds us and secures us? Who is God? What is his, what is his pure nature? So we're going to wrestle with this just for a few minutes. We're going to look at the scripture and try to understand this, speak into this a little bit better. We will certainly not settle all this in the next 15 minutes. Uh, matter of fact, we'll probably stir up some more questions in your mind, which we think is good. We, we encourage you to press into this, ask some questions, get this uh, a little bit more um, settled in your mind. The thing that I found, the more I have wrestled with God to try to understand him, the more I've understood that there's still a lot of mystery. There's still a lot that we'll never fully understand. But also, the more I lean into God, the more I understand that he is totally and ultimately good. I am more and more convinced of his goodness um, over time. Let's take a look at Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. If you want to understand love, look at Jesus. If you want to understand forgiveness, look at Jesus. If you want to understand the wrath of God, look to Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he took on the judgment of the world. He took on the whole of human sin, all of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus experienced the wrath of God when he took our sin upon himself. Let's look at how it unfolds. Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In the Old Testament, you're going to see this, this theme of the story where this cup would refer um, to the wrath of God. Jeremiah 25, 15. Again, we're just going to look at this one. There's many of these that present this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. One of the, peop- one of the ways that people have tried to understand the whole role of Jesus when it came to taking on the sin of the world, this idea of substitute is that, is that God the Father is just at his wit's end with us, that he is ticked, he is upset and angry at us, and he's raging, and he has to take that out on somebody. And Jesus steps in as a substitute and literally takes the punch. It's a little bit like a domestic violent, uh, violence uh, family situation where, where we've got this raging dad raging against the mom and the eldest son ste- steps in and takes the punch. Now that would make us very thankful for Jesus, right? Thank you for taking this for us. But it puts us in a pretty weird position when we think about Father God, that somehow God is raging, um, I believe that oftentimes when we go this direction, it's because we take, we're aware of our own anger and wrath, and we put that, um, that understanding, our human understanding, we present that and, and wrap that around to what we think about God. So let's look at what the wrath of God actually is. Now, what you're going to find is that it's not God the Father raging at the Son and having to take, take out um, hit this rage um, because of our sin and, and rebellion on Jesus. Matter of fact, you'll see that he never lifts a hand. 
um, towards Jesus. What God the Father did was he turned him over. He withdrew his presence and his protection from Jesus and turned him over to violent humans and to fallen angels and demonic influences. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins. Luke 9.44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. God the Father turned Jesus over to violent humans who did violent things to him. But he was never violent towards Jesus himself. And maybe the most poignant scripture that we see this in is when Jesus is hanging on the cross near death. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has taken on all of our sin. He's taken on the sin of the world. And he is experiencing the full brunt, the consequences of sin upon himself, which is death. God the Father has pulled back his protection. He's pulled back his presence from Jesus. That is the wrath of God. So the wrath of God is simply experiencing the consequences of sin. It's not an attribute of God. It is the consequence for our own sin and rebellion. So to further understand this, we kind of look at this theme throughout Scripture. We read one of these psalms at the beginning of the service. It talks about the most amazing place that we could ever live is in the presence of God. The presence of God is what we all strive for. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. We could go on and on and on that would, that would talk about the presence of God. This is the place of ultimate fulfillment. This is the place of ultimate joy. This is the place of ultimate peace. God is the beauty in all things beautiful. He is the good in all goodness. And so to be in his presence is where we, we experience total fulfillment and peace. So therefore, to be outside of his presence would be the greatest curse. It would be hellish to be able to be removed from, from his presence. So all sin is this sense of separation from God. I don't want you. I don't need you. I don't need your path. I'm going to do things my way. We see this in the garden, the very first um, sin. What happened is they were removed from his presence. It says, if they eat of this tree, they will surely die, is what the scripture says. Go on to read about sin and the effects of this in James 1. It says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So it's a natural cause and effect kind of response. And it's God's incredible mercy that gives us the opportunity to repent, to change our ways, to turn back, and to choose life, and to choose the life that he has for us. If we don't repent, if we don't change our ways, then he can withdraw his presence. And we can be in a situation where we are experiencing the consequences of our sin. I, I think about the story of the prodigal son as an example. You know, it was not the father's idea for him to take his inheritance and take off with it. I know he had to be going, oh, this is such a bad idea. But the son kept insisting, so he allowed him to go on, knowing he would no longer be under his father's protection. 
knowing his father is no longer there to cover things for him and take care of things. And he went off on his own and he got to the very, very bottom before he came back. But you know, when he came back, the father wasn't going, here you are dragging your sorry self back. You messed up so bad. I guess I'll let you. He was waiting. He was anxious. He wanted to welcome him back without recrimination. That is the heart of God. It's not, okay, I'll forgive your sins if you want to creep in here. It's welcome back. I've been waiting for you. I've been watching for you. I want you back. Let's celebrate. You've changed your ways. Let's celebrate the good things that I have for you. God always makes a way back for us to return. He's always watching for us. He's always welcoming us back. As a parent, I think sometimes about this story, and I think about, you know, it would be easy for me, if my son was off like that, to find a way to slip him a few 20s, you know? Somebody's going on a business trip over there. If you see my son, would you give him this money? Or I'd want to drop off groceries at the pig pen anonymously. But this was a good father. And the good father knew he had to suffer the consequences of this sin so that he could change because there was a heart issue that was involved. And he knew the best thing for the son was to get to that point so he would turn and change his ways and choose life. The Hebrews had an understanding of this in that in their language, there's not separate words for um, the sin and the punishment. The, the words, for instance, wickedness and sin and trespass and corruption all carry the same root words uh, for dis- as disaster and trouble and destruction. So the idea is sin carries the very seeds of its own punishment. So the natural consequence of sin is the wrath of God. And it's not so much like a judgment. It's not so much that, okay, you did this, so you get five years. You did this, you get 10 years. It's more of an organic thing. If you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day for 30 years, good chance you're going to get emphysema. If you drink crazy amounts of alcohol all of your life, you're probably destroying your liver. If you lie to your spouse, you've probably broken the foundational undergirding of every healthy relationship, which is trust. And you're going to suffer in that. If you uh, are gambling without restraint, there's a really good chance you're going to lose your house. And so it is kind of that response to um, our behavior. So when God allows us to experience these, it's because uh, or it, it, is the, it is the wrath of God. Now, God allows so that, as Janice said, his goal is that we would return. And so he allows pain in our life. So often we fight pain. As a matter of fact, people spend a lot of time and energy covering up pain. But pain is actually a blessing in our life. It can be one of the greatest motivators for any change uh, that we have. God allows pain so that we'll turn the corner, um, and that we'll repent, change our mind, and come back. All of us are fairly respectful of stovetops. Uh, we have one of those black glass top stoves, um, and sometimes it's hard to tell whether it's really on or not. I've been a little too close to that in my life. Well, he puts pain receptors in our hand for our own good. So that if we get close to it, we'll pull back. If he didn't allow pain in our life, we would have burnt our hands off by now. Um, 
and had that consequence. But he allows pain uh, because his goal is always for us to come back. God doesn't have this arbitrary list of rules that says, okay, obey this and obey this if you want to be a good person. Because this is how you're supposed to live if you want to be a good person. God calls us to obedience because he knows that sin is destructive in our lives. It causes decay. It causes death. So it's not that he's saying, don't sin or you're a terrible person. It's like, honey, don't sin. You're going to mess up your life by doing this. There are better things for you to do. Sin causes negative consequences. Sin can ricochet back on us, and it can cause us pain and difficulties. Galatians 6, 7 says, God cannot be mocked. People reap what they sow. In the Hebraic worldview, it's believed that it was very literally, if you sowed something, you would reap that exact same thing. From Hosea 8, 7, they sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. It's, it's the idea that the punishment is the very thing that you have sown. Now, we always have to be careful when we talk about this because we have this tendency to go, well, then if something bad happened in my life or something bad happened in this, in this person's life, it's the consequences of the sin in their lives. Sometimes, yes, sin does have consequences, but we also live in a fallen world. And sometimes people get cancer and we don't know why. Sometimes bad things happen to us, and it's not something that we did. We don't know why. But we do know that when we choose to sin, there is a destructiveness that can come in our lives. And that's why God wants us to change our ways and to not follow that. Now, as a counselor, I also have to say, sometimes I have people that come in and go, but so-and-so did this terrible thing, and they're not having any consequences. They're going on their merry way, and they're being happy. And I'm the one that's paying the price. We don't understand that. Having heard a lot of sad stories over the years, I could easily decide who should be punished. (laughs) There's part of me that's like, okay, Lord, that's one to take care of. And as I wrestle through with that and go, okay, why does it seem like that person gets by without the consequences? God just very sweetly speaks to me and says, that's my business. That's my business. You listen to me and you obey me. But I believe that there are consequences to sin, whether we see them in other people's lives or not. And some of you may be feeling, I think I'm reaping the seeds that somebody else has planted. Um, And yes, in this world, the scripture says we will have trouble. But in all of those situations, it says, look to Jesus. He's the one that has overcome the world. And so that would be kind of a whole nother message, but we're talking about our own personal responsibility and, and the effect um, that our choices make in our life. Psalm 7 says, those who are pregnant with evil concede trouble and give birth to disillusionment. Those who dig a hole and scoop it out fall into the pit they have made. The trouble they have caused recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their heads. It's like if I try to hit you, I hit myself because sin is destructive. It's self-destructive. God's wrath is when that is allowed to play out in our lives. Matthew 7, 1 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. God's mercy is the only thing that keeps us from these immediate consequences of our sins. God's And I'm very thankful for God's mercy in my life. God's wrath is when he has stepped back from that. 
Romans 1, several verses in Romans 1. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lust. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. It's obvious in this language that God is is after us, that he's um, by his spirit convicting us, that he wants us to pull back, that he doesn't want us to experience these things. Um, but there is what we call this ricochet effect. If, I, if I'm feeding my mind poorly, my mind's going to get sick. We, are, we live in a broken world. Um, the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. And kinda, I kind of see this as there's this force that's kind of trying to pull us down. It's a little bit like gravity, that there's something that's trying to come against us. Uh, it's like if I have a ball in my hand. I don't have to throw the ball down to hit the ground. All I have to do is let go of it. It's God's mercy that holds us and keeps us from the negative effects there. It is never God's desire. It is never his, his, um, his heart to let go. As we're struggling with, as we think this through and have scriptures come to our mind and go, okay, but what about this? But what about this? Look to Jesus. Scripture is clear. Jesus represents God. There is no other God. So whatever confusion there is there, we keep our eyes focused on Jesus and say, who is the character of Jesus? What is Jesus' heart? And we keep our minds there. When Jesus was coming into Jerusalem for the last time, which we now can call Palm Sunday, he was giving a prophecy about a coming judgment on Jerusalem. It was going to be difficult. It was going to be a hard and violent time. It's not that God would carry out the violence, but he would use the Roman people or the Roman people would come in and bring about massive destruction. But because of the sin of Jerusalem, God was removing his hand. Luke 19, 41 says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. It wasn't a, oh my gosh, they deserve this because they wouldn't change their ways. He wept. He was grieved over it. If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Earlier in Luke, we see in, in chapter 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. What we see is that Jesus is crying. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He's seen the consequences. He's seen the wrath that is to come. But God's crying. When we understand God through the life of Jesus, we see a God who always loves who always welcomes us back, who always forgives. But he does allow us the consequences of our sin sometimes because of our rebellion, because he wants us to change our ways and he wants us to pursue his way for our lives. For some reason, we're often drawn to this kind of wrath metaphor in scripture. I don't know exactly why. Part of it may be because we're very aware of our own anger. We know how quickly we get mad at the person that just pulls out in front of us in traffic. 
And we're going to be 32 seconds later than we would have been before. Um, but how quickly that comes. How dare they get in front of me, you know? So maybe because we're so sensitive to that that we project that on God. Maybe it's just the way that we're taught. Uh, there's a lot of things in culture that have uh, given us this perspective. When you look at the Greek and, and, and Roman gods, they were wrathful, flighty, prone to fits of rage. At one moment, they would love these people, and at the next moment, they would hate these people. Unfortunately, that's a little bit like how some Christians are. Some, um, Again, some forms of Christianity tend to look like this. Um, in Jesus' time, the Roman Empire was full of rage. Uh, they promised peace and prosperity, but it came with an undercurrent of domination uh, and control. So during this very, the very first Holy Week, week over 2,000 years ago, it became very obvious that the Christian story was going to be different than all the other stories that have ever been shared. Palm Sunday is the day that we contrast the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Many believe that in this triumphal entry, this day of triumphal entry, that at another gate that Pontius Pilate was actually entering Jerusalem. Now, he would have been um, riding in on a stallion. He would have been fully armored. He would have been covered with many guards who, who would have been looking down at the people, again, with the idea of domination and control. Jesus obviously chose, king of kings, chose to ride not on a full-grown donkey, but on a colt, a, a small, um, young donkey. So that he could sit down, so that he could see the people eye to eye. He came close. God came close to us. Looks us in the eye. Says, I am giving my life to you. I accept you exactly where you're at. Um, and I have come to make things new in your life. So God is not a flighty deity. It's not full of rage. He's the God who came close. God's not mad at you. He's not that angry, distant father that you've struggled to feel love from. Not that teacher that you could never please. Not that elder brother that you always wanted to be close to but never would give you the time of day. It's not his nature. He's always wanted the best for you from the beginning of time. He's always created a way for you to come back and experience new life. And as we prepare for the table today, just want you to listen. This is from a brilliant theologian, T.F. Torrance. Um, says it in very eloquent ways, much smarter than I am. But listen to these words. God is not one thing in himself and another thing in Jesus Christ. What God is toward us in Jesus, he is inherently and eternally in himself. This is the fiducial significance of the central clause in the Nicene Creed, that there is a oneness in being and agency between Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, and God the Father. What God is in eternity, Jesus Christ is in space and time. What Jesus Christ is in space and time, God is in his eternity. There is an unbroken relation of being and action between the Son and the Father. And in Jesus Christ, that relation has been embodied in our human experience once and for all. Listen to this section. There is thus no God behind the back of Jesus Christ, but only this God whose face we see 
in the face of the Lord Jesus. There is no deus absconditus, no dark, inscrutable God, no arbitrary deity of whom we can know nothing, but before whom we can only tremble as our guilty conscience paints harsh streaks upon his face. No, there are no dark spots in God of which we need to be afraid. There is nothing in God for which Jesus Christ does not go bail in virtue of the perfect oneness and being in nature between God and himself. There is only the one God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ in such a way that there is perfect consistency and fidelity between what he reveals of the Father and what the Father is in his unchangeable reality. The constancy of God in time and eternity has to do with the fact that God really that God really is like Jesus. For there is no other God than he who became man in Jesus and he, he whom God affirms himself to be and always will be in Jesus. Would you stand to your feet?